Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email address, can I ask you to do that today? Welcome back. Man, I actually, so I, I when I logged off with him, I said I was going to record this tomorrow. And then I thought, I can't deprive you good listeners, you good people, my friends, my family. I can't deprive you of, of the Been Awake podcast for better sense making. That would be that would be cruel and unusual punishment. I also had a Diet Coke with my dinner and uh, I have a lot of energy and it's, you know, it's almost 11 o'clock, which is about my bedtime. But uh, we're going to mo- we're going to go through the week at BenAwake.com because, frankly, I was fired up about the articles that I wrote this week. And I am fired up after my talk with James Gentleman. He is, I'll give a quick shout out right now, blackbird.substack.com. Uh, that interview should be coming out Sunday, question mark. Um, should be. I, you know, I'm going to go through it. I got to edit it. I got to do my little things that I like to do when I do my interviews. But uh, it was a lot of fun. It's a two-hour doozy where we uh, we cover the gambit between libertarianism and end up, as most discussions should, on the topic of God, the nature of reality, and who we are as people. I love it. I really appreciate it. I look forward to having more conversations with him. There was uh, there was a lot of fun had all around. So uh, yeah, let's. Uh, so wow, a lot of stuff happened this week. You know, I was just I just peeked into Twitter, and apparently the world is ending. Um, cause I guess Joe Biden, they've set a deadline. I, this will most certainly be written about next week, but they've set a deadline. Remember I said when, um, after the events of the six, that the empire was coming home. Uh, you know, we now have a perm- we, we now have a seemingly permanent military presence in Washington, DC. And while I've only seen the minute clip, so I, I can't comment fully. Apparently Joe Biden, our beloved and, and, you know, our, our, what, what did I say? All hail the president, all hail Biden. Our beloved and esteemed 79-year-old president, Joe Biden, went on the television to say that as long as we're all really, really good, we might be able to have a barbecue with our family come 4th of July. I don't curse a lot on this show. I try not to. It comes out. Fuck that. Fuck anybody who thinks that I that whether I was going to spend the 4th of July with my family is up for debate. Now, if they don't want to see me because they want to still do this social distancing thing, that's fine. Thankfully, I don't think that will be the case. I'm thinking back to my last 4th of July and I, uh, I was I ended up being by myself. Um, not on purpose. And I sat in my backyard and watched all the different people setting off fireworks in my neighborhood. Most nights I was really frustrated by the fact that people were setting off fireworks all the time. But that night I loved it. And I listened to Jeff, uh, 
Dostoevsky's uh, Symphony, the one from V for Vendetta, the 1814 Overture, da, 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 that one. Anyway, I, uh, I will most certainly likely listen to that piece again this 4th of July, and I hope to be celebrating it with awesome, freedom-loving people. But let's go through the week at beenawake.com. Like I said, I'm really fired up about, about a couple of these articles that I wrote, and uh, you know, I bothered to sit through that Oprah interview. So I may as well talk about it and get my show out on time. So Monday's post over at binawake.com was here come the monies. Of course, here's the update for you right now. Uh, they did, uh, he did sign the bill. And so you should be seeing that money deposited in your account any day now, if you qualify. And if you don't, well, that's what you get for being a productive citizen. So let's have some fun with numbers, shall we? Last week, we had some fun with numbers, um, and we learned about political theater on Friday's show. Start listening around 54 minutes of last week's episode if you missed it. I played some clips from Justin Amash on Michael Malice's You're Welcome, which is a great podcast I listen to a lot. Uh, Americans who have given themselves willingly to government cannot wait for the $1,400 check to rain down on them like manna from heaven. Even the Bezos-run Washington Post, mouthpiece for the elites, had this delicious headline. And the headline, and I did check, by the way, it was real. Biden stimulus showers money on Americans, sharply cutting poverty in defining move of pre presidency. Suffice to say, you can't cut poverty with $1,400 a person. That's just propaganda. And it's so blatant, I'm surprised that, I'm surprised that they didn't remove that article. But, um, you know, the emperor does have no clothes in today's world. So here's what happened. This is from a CNBC article. The Senate passed a one point nine trillion coronavirus relief package on Saturday as Democrats rushed to send out a fresh round of aid. The Democrat held House aims to pass the bill on Tuesday and send it to President Joe Biden for his signature before a March 14th deadline to renew unemployment aid programs. Now, I called this on the show last week. I said. There, here's the deadline, November, March 14th. It's going to happen before that. And in fact, today, as I record this, it is March 11th. The 14th is Sunday. And lo and behold, magic happened. And the government was able to come together to form, uh, to, to make sure that they bailed out the big banks and then give you your pittance. Good citizen. The legislation includes direct payments of up to $1,400 to most Americans, a $300 weekly boost to the jobless benefits into September, and an expansion of the child tax credit for one year. It also puts new funding into COVID-19 vaccine distribution and testing, rental assistance for struggling households, and K-12 schools for reopening costs. The package also includes $14 billion in payroll support for U.S. airlines, the third round of federal aid for the industry, in exchange for not furloughing or cutting workers' pay during pay rates through September 30th. Airline contractors have set aside $1 billion. So basically, we, the airline industry is nationalized at this point. So why it happened? If we were to divide the $1.9 trillion by 350 million Americans, everyone would receive $5,428.57. This still wouldn't help the people displaced by the government lockdowns, by the way. Some would argue that because the government instituted the lockdowns, people deserve some kind of compensation. These sorts of people made a lot more sense last year when the government lied by saying they needed 14 days to slow the spread. Now, with states rightfully allowing businesses to operate once again, employers are faced by a very serious problem. 
people aren't interested in working. And this includes most particularly employees who start their wages at $15 an hour to compete for labor. This most recent bailout, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the proper term is stimulus. It's a bailout. Perpetuates the issue by continuing to effectively nationalize businesses and reward individuals who prefer not to work for themselves. It goes against my sensibilities not to work. And frankly, I'm unconcerned with people who would rather sit on their butts than get ahead. As far as I am concerned, let's skip ahead and let's give them the UBI that Andrew Yang thinks will solve our problems because it won't. So will it work? If you're waiting around for your pittance of $1,400, this newsletter might not be for you. I know how tough the job hunt is, but I also know very well and firsthand how desperate many employers are for workers. Those who give themselves to government willingly will pay the price at some future date. Those of us who work to provide value will always find the means to success. Yes, it is a mindset thing. Of course, there are individual cases that lie outside of my generalizations. Generalizations. But that's no excuse for preferring government bailouts for major corporations. See, I don't see how the larger American economy will make it out of these latest bailouts and money printing. Will we see hyperinflation like the German Reichsmarks? Reich, Reichsmark? Reichsmarks? Man, I can't talk right now. I certainly hope not. Those government bailouts are about rewarding the connected while giving crumbs to the unwashed masses. Don't be fooled by the very institution that took the money from you in the first place. And if you are, well, subscribe. You know, see if there's, see if you like the newsletter. I know I said this isn't for you, but maybe it is. If if you're collecting unemployment, it's probably not. So Tuesday, I was excited. Hey, you know what? Actually, let's go with Wednesday's post first. I'll wait another year and a half. What a kid told me on my walk. We'll get because uh, Tuesday's post and Thursday's post was uh, they were both pretty heavy, and there's a correlation there that I think we should uh, we should tie together. So the weather is um, it's finally turning, right? Spring is on the horizon, and so this past Sunday was particularly nice and sunny, and I decided to take a walk with my uh, with my morning cup of coffee. One funny thing for those of us. For those of us who have to deal with the change in seasons, is that you're never quite sure how to dress. And so I wore um I wore a pretty heavy sweater and then like a really my really nice leather heavy jacket. Uh the, just the jacket or just the sweater probably would have been sufficient, but both of them together by the end I and I ended up walking like three or four miles. Um <laughs> it by the end of it, the sweater jacket combo was far too much. Um I started down my block. And I turned towards the major street heading west. With the sun shining and an audiobook playing in my ear, my head was on a swivel, observing the world around me as I'm wont to do. Want, by the way, W-O-N-T, is not the contraction for will not. It means accustomed to. It's one of my favorite words in existence. At the beginning of the lockdowns, I moved closer to the city that I've lived than I've lived in my entire life. Now that the snow is melting, you can see the trash. There's scratch-off lotto tickets someone just dropped on my front lawn, and they're not worth anything. And then there's the dirty teddy bear that must have fallen out of the car with its face ripped off laying against the tree. Update, I really need to just throw it out. I got to get some gloves, and I'll go throw out all the trash that's in my front yard. But um, it, it's now moved, so either the teddy bear is alive and it just can't see where it's going, or like kids are picking it up as they leave the school that's now back in session. 
then there are the masks. Masks are the newest form of litter. Covered in grime and folded over multiple times, they scatter the streets everywhere you go in a metropolis like Chicagoland. A lot of green measures, this is just an interesting observation, took a back seat in 2020. I'm not even complaining about it, except for the crappy plastic silverware you seem to get everywhere now, which sucks. I'm just making the observation that once there was a new means of scaring people into compliance, excess waste didn't seem like a big deal. It's funny. It's funny how the sun can be shining, the weather is improving, but people are too scared to breathe fresh air without the muzzle at their mouth. In their cars pumping gas, walking to catch the bus, or maybe just taking a stroll like I am, the faceless are everywhere. I do see a couple of us, people who have a face. One of them I saw as I walked by a padlock playground in a skate park. He was a young kid, probably early teens on his rollerblades, wearing a hockey sweater. He skated towards me, careful not to crowd the old lady walking into her house, until he came upon the padlocked skate park. I watched as his shoulders fell and his arms flapped with an exasperation that I couldn't tell with an exasperation and I couldn't tell whether it was from doing this every weekend or because he thought the tyrants in government would let him use the publicly funded skate park now that winter was on the outs. You should get a bolt cutter, I quipped, miming the action of opening the lock. A half smile flickered across his face. Nah, I'll just wait a year and a half as he started to skate away, back home, presumably. There's a part of me that wants to, hypothetically, bring bolt cutters with me the next time I take a walk. The tyrants here in Illinois have done such a good job convincing the faceless to give up their humanity. They eye me with dread as I walk freely down the street. There's a lot of work to be done. And like a battlefield hospital, I'm not sure everyone will be saved. But the faceless won't win the future. Not as long as we draw breath. I think you would call this post, by the way, amusing. So let me know what you think. You can, uh, you can leave a comment on it or shoot me a message on Twitter at the LB Muniz or on Instagram. Wherever you're at, you can find me there. Go to follow.binawake.com. Step right up. We're going to move on to Wednesday's post. Or rather, this was Tuesday's post. I'm just doing it third, so I normally think it's Wednesday. And Tuesday's post asked the question, what, pray tell, is your white identity? So a couple of weeks ago, well, let me just, let me just read through because I, I know I cover all this. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke. Those are the words, those words are the last thing one hears when they listen to the Been Awake podcast for better sense making. There are many reasons why I started generating content for a large audience. In my personal life, I've been fortunate enough to have people who trust my judgment to and ask me, what's this all about? For better or worse, I have amassed a body of knowledge that can firstly understand and secondly combat the woke dogma that is becoming ever more present in your daily life. 
Giving people a better understanding of the world is why I choose to spend my nights and weekends writing and producing content. It keeps me sharp and holds me accountable. I don't pretend to get everything right, but I publish my content freely for the general public to consume. If you are an individual with an inquiring mind who is interested in exploration, you will enjoy my content immensely. If instead, you are part of the progressive woke cult that is obsessed with race, you can be secure in your beliefs. As I write this as someone of European descent and therefore lack the melanin that entitles me to an opinion, I provide you this information as a courtesy so that you may never read my work again. Here's a headline from the New York Post. New York Public School asks parents to reflect, quote, on their whiteness. Recently, there was a news story about a high school principal in New York City who asked parents to reflect on their, quote, whiteness. whiteness. He sent a couple of graphics out that delineated eight white identities. Allegedly, these eight white identities are a culmination of the work of one Dr. Barner Hess. I say allegedly only because I could not find original source material for these identities and his Twitter profile is private. If anyone knows, by the way, where he expounds on these ideas, please share it with me so I can better understand his position. The school claimed in, in the linked above New York Post piece, a New York City Department of Education official told the Post that some parents at the school, which caters 6th to 6th through 12th graders on the Lower East Side, first shared material with the staff. The principal then disseminated it to every parent, quote, as part of a series of materials meant for reflection and as, quote, food for thought the official said. A Department of Education rep said in a statement, quote, anti-racism and the celebration of diversity is at the core of our work on behalf of the young people of New York City and the East Side Community School students, parents and staff, parents and staff partnered together to advance equity in their community. The documents in question was shared with the school by parents as part of an ongoing racist, anti-racist work in the school community and is one of the many resources the school utilizes. So allow me then, if this is about reflecting on ideas, allow me to do them the service of reflecting on these ideas. Before I begin, allow me to restate that I practice methodological individualism and do not fall victim to the specter of Marx nor the polylogism that animates so much of this woke ideology. I focus on understanding and expression as two basic means by which we interact with reality, whatever that is. Translation, I am not interested in racializing a society and have never used race or ethnicity to determine who I associate with. This is not the case for individuals like Dr. Hess or the larger anti-racist, quote, quote unquote there, air quotes around that, anti-racist body of work that is permeating American society. For them, race is and always will be the defining issue. So I will quote and give you the eight white identities according to Dr. Hess. Maybe it's Hesse. I don't know how it's pronounced. There is a regime of whiteness and there are action-oriented white identities. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. It's about time we build an ethnography of whiteness since white people have been the ones writing about and governing others. So first are white supremacists, 
clearly marked white society that preserves this is and this is what the definition is a clearly marked white society that preserves names and values white superiority number two is white voyeurism a white voyeur wouldn't challenge a white supremacist desires non-whiteness because it's interesting pleasurable seeks to control the consumption and appropriation of non-whiteness and has fascination with culture an example of this is consuming black culture without the burden of blackness. Third, white privilege. White privileged people may critique supremacy, but a deep investment in questions of fairness and equality under the normalization of whiteness and the white rule. And man, these sentences. A white someone who's white who a white privilege, which is number three in the series, may critique supremacy, but a deep investment in questions of fairness and equality under norm under the normalization of whiteness and the white rule. Sworn goal of diversity. Okay. Number four, white benefit. A white benefit is somebody sympathetic to a set of issues, but only privately. Won't speak or slash act in solidarity publicly because benefiting through whiteness in public. In parentheses, some POC, persons of color, are in this category as well. White confessional. Some exposure of whiteness takes place, but as a way of being accountable to persons of color after. They seek, and these white confessionals seek validation from persons of color. White critical. White critical folk take on board critiques of whiteness and invest in exposing and marking the white regime. Refuses to be complicit with the regime, whiteness speaking back to whiteness. White traitor. Actively refuses complicity. Names what's going on. Intention is to subvert white authority and tell the truth at whatever cost. Need them to dismantle institutions. And then finally, number eight, we have the white abolitionists. White abolitionists are about changing institutions, dismantling whiteness, and not allowing whiteness to reassert itself. I think that guy, I think in those eight, I think in that sentence, I have said the word white more than I have ever said in a five minute span in my entire fracking life. The Slow Factory is the organization responsible for disseminating these ideas. And, on they, and as they say in the linked Instagram post in the piece, quote, we all need to work to become white abolitionists. Identify where you are and get to work. This also is a helpful guide to identify where those around you truly stand. You may infer, you, if you were to read that statement on Instagram and you were to see this post, which is likely how this matriculated, I can't prove this, but this is likely one of the ways in which this matriculated and made it to the high school in New York City, which then kind of blew up the story. You may infer from such a statement that uh, you should pick one of those eight identities laid out above. Supremacist, voyeurist, privileged, benefit, confessional, critical, traitor, abolitionist. Not so fast, says poet and writer Lesia, Lesia, Lesia Michelle on medium.com. She writes, if you missed the paragraph at the top of the list, then you overlooked the entire reason why he, Professor Heiss, has created this list. So let's go back to that paragraph. The paragraph is, there is a regime of whiteness and there are action-oriented white identities. People who identify with whiteness are one of these. It's about time we build an ethnography of whiteness since white people have been the ones writing about 
and governing others. So if you overlooked the entire reason why Professor Heiss created the list, he created the list, according to Licia Michelle, for black and brown people to use as a resource to categorize those people who claim to be our allies. So if you ranked yourself, you failed miserably. White people have no business ranking their own allyship. Whatever title you get is given to you by the marginalized group you claim to be supporting. If you ranked yourself as anything other than plain than a plain old white supremacist, <laughs> you have failed. It should be obvious to you that any self-assigned ranking means that you are giving yourself accolades for climbing the mythical ladder of white supremacy. And it is mythical. That doesn't make sense, by the way. Like, so, so if you're climbing the ladder of white supremacy, wouldn't white supremacy be at the top? And yet they're say she's saying that if you didn't say you were white supremacist, then like you were wrong. So how can you climb up if you're only a white supremacist? Yeah, logic. White people, you white people, listen up, white people. You must realize becoming an ally slash accomplice means you are navigating a winding road on which oftentimes you have no idea what's around the corner. You're climbing an endless mountain where at any time your footing may slip and you may tumble right back down to beginning allyship. That's what it is. That's what it always will be. You will learn about allyship your entire life. You will never graduate. You will never know everything. You will never become an expert. Certainly a confusing set of ideas we've uncovered here, wouldn't you say? Let me try for a second. I wasn't planning to do this uh, when, I, when I started reading this piece, but I like to attempt to basically translate what she said into uh, you know, something that might sound more familiar. We are all sin. You are sinners. Every last one of you are sinners. And you must be, re you must realize that if you don't want to be a sinner, you are navigating a winding road on which you have no idea what's around the corner. If you, you sinners are climbing an endless mountain where at any time your footing may slip and you may tumble right back down to the beginning, to the ground floor, because you are sinners. That is what you are, and that is what you will always be. You will learn to not be a sinner your entire life, but you will never graduate. You will never know everything. You will never become an expert. Now, I've, I've never identified with being white. I don't consider myself within any of these identities, and you shouldn't either. These are not the words. These words from Licia, these words from Dr. Hess, these are not the words of people looking to make the world a better place. These are the words of those hungry for power over others. The supposed reflection that you can do in response to these ideas only goes in one direction, subservience. I, for one, have never been, in, have never been interested in serving the interests of tyrants. As a skeptic, it is my duty to hold bad ideas to account. And political thinking, and so political thinking clouds judgment. I would argue much of, at its root, much of this kind of thinking, these eight wide deities, this idea of allyship, intersectionality, wokeism, 
Much of this kind of thinking is political in nature. As a result, it is zero sum. For them, there is no scenario where two parties can win. There must always be one dominating another. The beauty of marketplace capitalism is that all of us can succeed provided we are creating value. You may ask the question, given that our society is relatively capitalistic, are they not serving a market function? If we leave aside, and so I'll answer that, if we leave aside the undue influence government-funded universities have on the broader society, it is accurate that thinkers like Dr. Hess are filling some kind of market demand. There are scores of those who believe this is the only way forward for humanity. The, quote, progressive mind demands this as a fact of nature. Progressives have always been interested in expelling the unfortunates from society. At its inception, this included racial and ethnic minorities. Today, it has progressed and is focused more on those thinking independently of the corporate press. For more on this idea, I would highly encourage you to read Illiberal Reformers, Race and Eugenics in the Progressive Era, which I have linked to at the, in the piece. Given the level of wealth we have achieved as a broader civilization, we do not need to think of things only in terms of zero-sum political games. Yet, the politicians, universities, and media outlets that dominate the popular narrative recoil at this assertion. The reason for this is simple. Those obsessed with the desire to hold power over others will refuse to consider any ideas that do not perpetuate their power. The internet age means that a skeptic like your humble author can still write freely, despite the censorship of tech giants. I am willing to have a friendly conversation or formal debate with anyone who will give me the time. Life is too short to hold hate in your heart, and I don't spend my days hating those who disagree with me. This is why we will win and the race-obsessed woke will lose. If you agree... I ask that you subscribe and share this piece with somebody struggling with the woke ideology. The time has come for free men and women to assert their autonomy from tyrants and thieves. I am. Um, oh, man, what to say about this? I. This isn't going away. This racial dogmatism that's re that's asserting itself in America and around the world this isn't going away. It will only be a couple of years before this is considered, I don't know, normal. That this is considered good. Like, I, I, I don't have a good... Um, it, it, we're already at that point, yes? We're already at that point. This is already happening. This is already being disseminated in schools. I could not imagine having a young son or daughter in school right now. I, I couldn't imagine. My heart goes out to you if you do. You don't have the luxury as a parent to take a back seat in your child's education. I, I don't think you've ever had that luxury. I think a lot of parents have lied to themselves and more parents don't care enough to where they've just let other people take control of their child's education. You don't have that luxury anymore. Not if you listen to this show. 
if you're listening to the show, if you're reading the pages of binawake.com, you you know this already. I'm I'm just telling you. I'm just telling it to you. This isn't something that just goes away. This is something that you have to stand up against. You don't have to do a lot. You don't have to become a writer like I'm doing. You don't have to go to meetings and you don't even have to, frankly, you don't, you don't have to do what would you have to do is raise your kids, right? Have children, get married. If, if you want, you don't, you know, if you, if you feel that you're, you, that's not your calling, then that's fine. But if you're on the fence about it, I, I would recommend it. That's, that's what I hope to have someday. If you don't, if you don't take an active role in your children's, and if you know, if you have nephews and nieces, and and by the way, this isn't about indoctrination. This, what we just read through, is indoctrination. Freedom. A culture of freedom needs to be perpetuated, but it doesn't need, you don't need to indoctrinate people. You just need to show them that there's a better way of going forward. And you need to you need to be unafraid, or at the very least, you should be worried, but you have to be strong, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Let's go to the content recommendation for the week. Wrap out the show. I just did two hours of a podcast with James Gentleman from the Blackbird podcast, blackbird.substack.com. Highly recommend checking out his work. He, um, he does like this really cool mix of kind of, you know, interviews with like with a philosophical bent. And then he also highlights people's businesses, uh, which, which is a pretty cool show. I really enjoyed our talk. If you've been, unless you, I don't know, if you haven't logged into the internet all week, you may have missed that um, there was a very important interview that happened. And, you know, I would say that tongue in cheek. And I will let me let me start off by saying a lot of people rightfully, 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 rightfully have mocked the interview that Oprah did with uh, with Harry and Meghan. Right. Harry is a prince, I guess, in, in England. You may have heard of that country. Um, a lot of people have rightfully mocked it and you know that's again I say rightfully because you should mock this thing and that's that's good make jokes about it uh that's you know that's just not my thing I I will I mean we'll 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 crack a couple of jokes I'm just not that funny of a person I'm not a comedian Uh, I have a just a sharp wit at times um so This is uh this was a doozy, man. I um I wasn't gonna watch it, and then I decided to. And I'm I'm glad I did because there's a lot that we can draw from this. And that brings us to the letter of the week, which is O. What does O stand for? Well, if you've read the piece, you already know, but if not, you're gonna have to wait and find out. So in the, I, I covered I, I tried to highlight three big ideas inside of um of the interview and try to draw that out but before we get to that um i just want to i i also wrote down quotes from it as uh as i was watching the show and it was a show by the way it was just, there was a stage there was a set all of it i was as i was watching the show i tried to write down quotes 
The first thing is just a reminder of the times we live in. Oprah wouldn't hug Megan as she came out. There was, of course, the obligatory, oh, you're pregnant. Pregnancy is a great thing, by the way. I'm just saying, like, it was very like, oh, my gosh, you're actually pregnant. It's like, what? You know, as I as I think about that, that was like the first thing Oprah said. It's like, oh, maybe Oprah does think this woman's a liar. <laughs> I don't know. But the first thing that Oprah said was, now, we just want to let everybody know that everybody here is double masked with a face shield. Of course, by everyone, it wasn't Harry. It wasn't Megan. And it wasn't Oprah. It was all the staff and the people, you know, the peons, the plebes, the serfs who were filming the event. They started out by talking about the wedding. Now, I decided to watch this interview for a couple of reasons. First, I may as well, considering I write four articles a week and host a podcast. And if you're going to listen to commentary on it, it may as well be better sense making. The second is that given the hype and the players involved, there are deeper and more important lessons to draw away from this staged event. The beginning parts of the interview was about the wedding. (laughs) And one of the first observations that Megan makes is that their wedding was a day for the world. The second point she made was that she never looked up Prince Harry online. And then the third point was about meeting Her Majesty the Queen. Now, then they start talking. Then they cut back to their house in the USA. She talks about, I just love rescuing things. And they started going through the tabloid headlines. And they basically said, so as I'm looking at this, It was the first segment after the first commercial break, right before they go into the second commercial break, is where they introduced race. That's where they teased it. Right after it was a story that the tabloids said that Kate cried, but actually it was that Kate made Megan cry, I guess, before the wedding. Something about bridesmaids' dresses. Who the fuck cares? I don't need to disparage these people. I can, but I don't need to. We're going to focus on deeper points. The other thing they said at the beginning, (laughs) the other thing they said at the beginning was that they weren't getting paid for doing this interview, that nothing was off limits, which is just a lie. If, If nothing was off limits, they would have gone on Joe Rogan or we would have seen a fully unedited interview. Instead, the interview was edited. Stuff was left out. And they use somebody like Oprah, who is, you know, an elite in her own right. So she talked about loving rescuing. And then they talked about the headlines. And basically, basically, she just, she... All right, so this is this is what I'm trying to say. So I'm like looking through all these I'm looking through all these quotes that I had written down and it's frankly too much if you ask me, but <laughs> I so the the beginning parts of the interview is just is her talking about the wedding and how crazy it was 
and how she never looked anything up. She never looks at the headlines. She never looks at the tabloid. She never bothers to Google the person she's marrying. She never bothers to look up what it's like to be royalty in England. Huh? What an uninteresting person. What an uninquisitive person, frankly. I think a lot of it is a role that she's playing. There's nothing wrong with playing a role, by the way. This this show, you'll hear you'll hear James talk about it a little bit. He'll call me out on it um, in the interview, in the conversation we had, which was great. You know, this show, Albi Muniz, is a persona. I accentuate elements of my personality to make to make it more entertaining, and to develop a gravitas. So there's nothing wrong per se with playing a role. I'm just honest about it and she's not. What she was do- this is what I think this is what I think Meghan Merkel was doing in part. And it relates to the word of the week, the letter of the week. Oh. I think she was playing the damsel in distress. So most of my philosophical journey has been driven by a desire to understand what culture is. While this article and this this part of the podcast is not the place to fully explore what culture is, it is enough to say there is a thing we call culture, and it has been studied by social scientists. And in that social scientists have studied the phenomena of moral culture, some have posited that we are in the midst of a second transition. I'll let Dr. Jonathan Haidt, a a psychologist who focuses in areas of morality, give us some more details. So I'm quoting from a blog post at righteousmind.com. Big fan of Dr. Haidt. He's fantastic. Really just a good scientist, a good academic, um, a credit credit to uh, to a a class of people that don't always deserve credits. Credit, frankly. We're beginning a transition of moral cultures. The first major transition happened in the 18th and 19th centuries when most Western societies moved away from cultures of honor where people must earn honor and therefore avenge insults on their own to cultures of dignity in which people are assumed to have dignity and don't need to earn it. This culture of dignity is now giving way to a new culture of victimhood in which people are encouraged to respond to even the slightest unintentional offense, as is, as in an honor culture. The paper, is he, the paper he is discussing, written by sociologists Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, is worth more time and reflection. It's linked above and also in the piece right there. As it focuses on the phenomena of microaggressions and how they demonstrate this shift in morality. It's fascinating to think we've come so far since microaggressions that they're no longer in vogue. Like that was actually what I, I really did think that was, that was kind of funny when I was writing this piece, who the, when was the last time you heard somebody talk about a microaggression? Now we just outright call people white supremacist. Their purpose is served. The microaggressions purpose is served and the transition to a victim morality has all but solidified in narrative driven by institutions of power. If we take that being a victim has achieved a high moral status and that taking offense at minor slights is encouraged, 
we can infer or deduce that playing the victim, whether accurate or not, can give one status. Being a victim, therefore, has a currency in social circles going the way, sorry, trying to understand my own writing. <laughs> being a victim has a currency in certain social circles the way going to Harvard or being a Freemason might. Right. So if like you go to Harvard and you tell people that, that, that means something to most people. And if you're a Freemason, that means something to other Freemasons. For whatever else she may be, Meghan Markle, because I, I don't know if she changed her name, but I've seen her reported with her, you know, with that last name. For whatever else she might be, Meghan played up her victim status during this interview with Oprah. And I just need you to understand that was no accident. Consider that on one hand, Megan claimed multiple times she never re read press about her. But on the other hand, the way she was treated, if we understand that, isn't simp... Did I not explain this properly? <sighs> That's really frustrating. Um, <laughs> sorry, this I wrote this Wednesday night. Okay, so what was I trying to say here? So... On the one hand, we're supposed to we're supposed to believe that she doesn't read the press about her, but then on the other hand, we're supposed to believe that she was suicidal at some point because in large part of the press written about her and because of the way the institution of the monarchy acted towards her. Which basically, if she had bothered to do any research, which I'm sure she actually did, I'm not sure, but I would guess she actually did. If she had actually done research on what it was like to be royalty at that level, she might have understood that this was going to be her life. But instead, but it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. She's playing the victim because that gives her status and currency under this, you know, under this victim mentality that a lot of people adopt. If we understand that this isn't simply a matter of engendering sympathy, but expressing a particular kind of morality that rewards one based on the degree to which they take offense, the blurry image of this interview begins to focus. Now, lest one accuse me of focusing too closely on Megan, half the interview that was aired was without her husband Harry in attendance. She spoke most about what happened. And in fact, the entire story, in a very real sense, revolves around her. I don't think we really understand what it means to be part of different social classes in America, at least not like the British do. The idea of class in Britain is more defined and far older than the general economic classes we tend to divide ourselves into here in the USA. Even in a world where the richest people on earth are not royalty, for example, Jeff Bezos has a higher net worth than the British monarchy. Those who are of the noble class in Great Britain are separate and apart from the average bloke. This is consequences that I, as an American, won't fully understand. And it's important when we remember this that when thinking about the interview. Royalty isn't unique to England, but theirs is one of the most influential surviving dynasties that despite losing its empire, still has a commonwealth that claims fealty to their sovereignty, which is just a fancy way of saying, God save the queen, right? As an American of partially Irish descent, no less, I find this sort of thing distasteful, but I can respect that people have different beliefs. 
Then there's the racial element. It's possible to believe that there have been serious racial wrongs. This is just an obvious point I'm about to make. It's positive to believe that there have been serious racial wrongs in history, both ancient and recent, while not thinking that everything must be reduced to racism. The discussion of race is far more American, and yet most Americans will refuse to engage with this idea in a serious way. There is dogma surrounding the nature of race and the degree to which it controls daily life that most will not bother to question. I am fond of saying that racism is the oldest and most persistent means of social control, but I have also written where intersectionality goes wrong and what is wrong with so-called unconscious bias training. In both of these pieces, I demonstrate that individualism is preferable to racism as it gives us a greater understanding of the world. This isn't the case for what Megan, Oprah, and eventually Harry say. One of the pleasantries, once the pleasantries were out of the way, the rhetoric of racism filled the air like smoke from spoiled incense. This type of racism is infused with the specter of Marx. See, Marx believed that everything was reducible to class. His successors today believe that he was wrong in choosing class. Clearly, race is what divides humanity. Rounding out this section is the press. According to Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mencius Moldbug, the cathedral is the unholy union between academia, media, and government. While he was speaking about an American church, American cathedral, we saw this same sort of dimension play out during the interview. When Harry was trying to explain why they left their duties in the royal family, he spoke of the tension between the royal family, the institution, and the tabloids. According to him, the royals are just as much of a hostage to the press as they are free people and rulers of England. More so, it would seem, that Americans are hostage to the press. I don't know enough about British culture to comment further on this. I will simply highlight that while this was put on by one major press institution, another major press institution was blamed for most of the trouble. So a little bit more on this because this is really important, right? I talk a lot about, and I think it's really important that we, that you, that we understand the nature and the depravity of much of the corporate press, the malfeasance, as Michael Malice would put it. This is a major story. In many respects, it highlights, and you know, even I'm covering it, right? But I'm making this pause here so that I can bring up a really important point. We're supposed to believe that the tabloids are, you know, the real, the real culprit, right? And Harry also talked, um, Harry also talked about how he didn't want history to repeat itself. So his mother, the princess Diana was killed in a car accident running away from the press is my understanding. It happened when I was very, very young. So this man grew up without a mother and then ended up marrying somebody who became suicidal as a result of the press coverage, even though she never read it. I don't know what's true or false. I'm just talking about this. Harry doesn't want history to repeat itself, and yet he's reliving history. Except he's doing, maybe in his mind, what his father never could do, which was leave it all behind. One of the big angles 
in this was about like I said, it was all about race. And one of the, there was a few different ways in which it played out. One was with the, the way the tabloids were covering Megan. And there's something to be said here. If we consider that racism is the oldest and most persistent means of social control, there's a corollary. There's a correlated thought that racism is also really dumb. Right. I, you know, I, I'm somebody who will like, I, I don't t- spend a lot of time talking about racism because it's dumb. Racism is a dumb thing to talk about. It is a dumb set of ideas. And I think a lot of dumb people are obsessed with being racists and consequently, and consequentially obsessed with racism. I think it's a marker of people who aren't careful thinkers. Why? Because it's easy. And why am I saying this? Because it's an easy angle for the tabloids to exploit time and time again in Great Britain. And this was this was known. It's known. If you do any sort of research into the way the royals act and, and operate, they the tabloids aren't the same thing as what we think of tabloids here in the US, is my understanding. It's still real, it's still trash, still really dumb, but it's not quite the same. It's like the National Enquirer. My impression of Harry was somebody who is deeply in love with somebody for whatever Megan, for whether, whether or not Megan is right or wrong for him is beside the point. And I did notice that when he spoke, and most people are talking about Megan, few people are talking about Harry. Most most of the time when he spoke, it was very action-oriented, right? So I just got to get my family out of here. She said that she's going to kill herself. I don't want her to die, so therefore I'm going to remove her from the situation. Therefore, I'm going to leave my family, my title, my lands, my wealth. I'm going to leave all that behind because I don't want history to repeat itself. Dare I say... There's something noble in that. That's a joke. One thing before we get to before we get to the letter of the week, what O stands for. One thing that was interesting that Megan hit on a lot is that she thought she was protected by the institution, by the firm. There was one really interesting exchange. And this is going to lead very well into the word, the letter of the week, what O stands for. At one point, Megan said, it's funny. I've advocated so long for women to use their voice and I was silent. And Oprah responded, were you silent or were you silenced? The latter said Megan. Now I highlight this because while she spoke this big game of <laughs> while she spoke this big game of uh, not understanding the ways and the traditions of royalty, she spoke like a royal. I don't know a lot about British culture, but I I watch I watch some British TV. I I watch I you know, I've 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 I like seen like some of the architecture in Britain. I've seen, you know, kind of random documentaries and stuff like that. And one thing you don't do as royalty, as a noble, is answer questions directly. 
And there was a few times that she did this. Um, let's see if I can find another one. There was so she kind of kept switching back and forth. Whenever it became, whenever it became something, um, whenever it became something that was like controversial. For, here's here's a really easy example. She always, 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 and every time referred to Queen Elizabeth as Her Majesty, which is what you're supposed to do as a good British citizen, not as an American. Her Majesty is not, I don't have a majesty. I don't have a queen. Thank you. She was never, never spoken ill word about the queen, which is what you're supposed to do as a good British citizen. And she never answered things directly, which is supposed to, which is what you're supposed to do as a good noble. You're also supposed to let other people do the talking for you. And she let Oprah do that many times. So Oprah would do like, oh, well, were you silenced? Hmm, maybe. The latter. Yes. She, ne she never came out and said, yes, I was silenced. She never came out and said, who said that Archie, their son, was he going to be a little bit darker? She also like claimed that she was never given training and Harry tried to cut her off in the interview. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but, and she like immediately grabbed his hand and said, well, but like, I wasn't raised with it. Right. Because this was a show and it was a show of people operating at the highest level. And the reason for that and the letter of the week, oh, is for oligarchy. So there's a reason why they didn't take their story to the Joe Rogan experience. This interview was edited and things were off limits. And there were many questions that were never fully explored. I would argue this was on purpose, but it wouldn't do us any good to try and prove that. They will probably be talking about this interview for a long time. And we're supposed to now think, and this is, this is where we're going. This is the whole whiteness thing that we were just talking about. This woke dogma, this ascendancy, right? Just as class separated people, race must race must separate people. That's what all these folk believe. So we're supposed to think the British family, the royal family in Britain, is maybe a little bit racist. Not the Queen, but you know, still a little bit racist. But we're not supposed to talk about the pedophile they're protecting. Prince Andrew. We're supposed to be upset at the fact that the tabloids made wanted to make Megan kill herself, even though she never read them. We're supposed to believe that that made her suicidal. Except we're not supposed to talk about the fact that ABC squashed a story about pedophiles and Jeffrey Epstein because it might harm their relationship with the Royals. And then CBS fired that same reporter after it came out that she said that while she worked for ABC. We're, we're not supposed to talk about that. There's a reason for this, by the way. While the left will call it a democracy, well, this, this country a democracy, and the right will call it a republic, the United States can be properly classified as an oligarchy. In a study published in 2014 from Northwestern and Princeton University and published by Cambridge University Press, they found, and I quote, 
economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policies. While mass-based interest groups and average citizens have little or no independent influence, our results prove substantial support for the theory of economic elite domination and for theories of biased pluralism, but not for theories of majoritarian electoral democracy or majoritarian pluralism. Translation, the powerful and connected have more power than you. It may be the case that the few will always rule the many, but that still leaves open the question of which few and who is most qualified to do that. Though Harry and Meghan are not acting royals, they're still acting royal. It's not as if Harry decided to open a factory or begin a law practice. It was made very clear in this interview that, quote, their work will continue through their own foundation. They are planning to work in the media, with their neighbor Oprah no less, to bring about their vision of the world. So, you know, they weren't getting paid for this interview, but, you know, Oprah just made a passing remark. <laughs> After Megan talks for, you know, a long time about her mental health and her suicidal ideation, Oprah just kind of drops it in that her and Prince Harry are working on a special for Amazon about mental health. That so you understand that's why this thing is staged. That's why these things are not as organic as they would be, as they would lead you to believe. I try to make sure that when I write, I focus my attention on centers of power while they don't carry membership cards to my knowledge. There is certainly a club of elite people who get to make more decisions about the way things work, and we're not in it. A year into lockdowns and a sea of faceless people, the divide between the elites and the rest of us has become more apparent. We see this reflected in populism in our political process and riots in our streets. Power and status are real things. Some are born with it, like Harry. Others achieve it like Oprah. And to complete our story, Megan strikes me as someone looking to achieve it. For these and other reasons, I will take her seriously. After all, I just wrote about 1,600 words breaking down this interview for you. If you thought it was valuable, if you like this show, please hit the heart um, in the show notes description. And before I, before I wrap... What I'm about to say should not be construed as being dismissive of legitimate health claims, mental or otherwise. I put this as a footnote in the piece. Anybody who would do something like that with my work is a bad faith actor and they will be treated with contempt. But if you thought this, uh, if you thought this episode was valuable, please hit the heart and visit binawake.com slash donate and buy me a coffee. I am certainly going to need one tomorrow as I'm, you know, doing three hours of podcasts now, but I love it. And I'm so thankful to everybody who listens uh, do me the favor if you would make sure you go follow me on on social media at the LB Moniz. If you like what you heard today, go to binawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Moniz, and I am not one with the woke.